with this out of loop was kind of a surprise. Do you gals remember on Transfiguration Sunday what it was that we did with the Alleluia banner? Yes, go ahead. Um, you, bur you buried it in the, um, in the statue thing. What? The tomb fountain. There. I'll tell you what we did. <laughs> we, uh, we buried it in the baptismal font. And so Transfiguration Sunday, was uh, the last kind of big blast of epiphany when all the candles were lighted and all the alleluias were being sung. And it's also the next Sunday is a Lent Sunday after Ash Wednesday. And so during Lent, we do not say the alleluia. And so we buried it in the baptismal font and brought it out yesterday so it could hang again. Let me show you one more time for those at home. Yeah. Now, do you know the difference between Hallelujah and Hallelujah. I didn't know there was a difference. I didn't know there was a difference either, but I looked it up on <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> that stunning fellowship, right? Yep. Yep. Well, it was right there. <laughs> I saw no reason to look further. Hallelujah is something we say when we're really excited and kind of spontaneous, and it's Hebrew for. Hallelujah. That was pretty good. Very good. Means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, like what we have here without that H. This is what we say in church. I guess we don't want to, especially we Lutherans, don't want to get too carried away. <laughs> and so we say, Hallelujah, and we have an Hallelujah verse. So this will be out throughout all the Sundays of Easter, because lots of times people think Easter is just one Sunday. But Easter is a season. There are seven Sundays of Easter before we get to Pentecost. So that will be up here the whole time. So thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for coming up. Appreciate it. Luke, you too. Is this Luke's first children's sermon? Yes, it is. Wonderful. Welcome. That's great. I love having little kids come up for children's sermons and they always steal the show. <laughs> and that's part of the joy of having them. It's wonderful. So grace and peace to all of you today. The grace to watch, the peace to wait, and the strength to go and tell. The women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, others with them, the women saw it all. They saw the new tomb. They saw how the lifeless body was laid there in that tomb. They watched as it happened. And because Sabbath was coming at sundown, just as it did this year on Good Friday, they left the tomb to prepare spices and ointments. And because it was the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. They waited. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, when they came to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. And upon entering the tomb, they did not find the body. Then suddenly two men, as they're described in Luke, two men in dazzling clothing appeared and asked, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you. 
and then the women remembered what they were told. Have you ever had that experience? That you aren't thinking of anything in particular, don't have any particular remembrance, and then at a family reunion or there is some event and somebody makes a comment and it's like, oh, that's what that was about. Particularly if it was some kind of family secret. So what had been obscure and confusing for people to hear in Galilee now became clear and compelling. And the women returned from the tomb to the 11 and the others. They went and told. But the men didn't believe the women. Now, I imagine there's at least one woman in the congregation today who is sitting there thinking, well, not much has changed in 2,000 years. But the point is, the men did not believe because of the source. The men didn't believe because they found it unbelievable. But Peter, with his characteristic impulsivity, leaves the others, runs to the tomb, and stooping down to look in. Now he's a little cautious. Peter sees nobody, but only those linen wrappings. And he goes home amazed. He goes home amazed. What happened? I was visiting some time ago with an elderly clergyman who has spent his whole life working for social justice and for the movement of the Holy Spirit within congregations. He was a wise sage. And this elderly clergyman commented that he could, at that point in his life, grasp much of Jesus' ethical teaching. And then he paused and he said, but the resurrection, the resurrection, what happened? What happened? So along with the elderly pastor, if we also wonder, what happened? We can tell from the gospel lesson, we're in splendid company along with the disciples who were then amazed and unsure of what had happened. When we stand beside the empty tomb, as we do today, and are amazed. We are in splendid company. We are not alone. What happened? Did you notice in today's gospel lesson, nobody actually sees the risen Christ? Nobody saw him. And in part, if we ask what happened, one response is, that remains to be seen, because the story of the resurrection is not yet finished. The meaning of the resurrection is still unfolding. It is already, and for us, not yet. I recall several years ago, when I was living in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was a devastating ice storm. The leaves were still out on the trees, and power outages lasted for days and thousands of tree limbs came crashing down and hundreds of huge trees split apart and people all over town commented, things will never be the same, as though they would have been the same anyway. Yet three years later, walking down those same streets, a visitor to town would never have suspected that this had been the scene of such devastation. The story didn't stop with the ice storm. Some of you remember the tornadoes in Grand Island, Nebraska. I've talked with you about them. Seven tornadoes over a town of 50,000 people. There was just devastation. Neighborhoods disappeared, flattened like they'd been bombed. 
I know because I know some folks who live there. Neighborhoods all over town were absolutely unrecognizable after the tornadoes, and people all over town said, things will never be the same, as though they would have been the same anyway. Yet, years later, as I drive down some of those same streets, I would never have suspected that this was the scene of such devastation, because the story didn't stop with the tornadoes. None of this is to minimize the sense of loss and disorientation that comes with disaster. Disaster the likes of which many Californians and others are still contending with and will be contending with for months and months. We'll talk more about that later. None of this is to minimize the void and the heartache that come from bereavement. Many of us can almost certainly identify with the crushing resonant grief that comes from the loss, one way or another, of a loved one. Those times when you're really not sure if you're going to live through it, and you think maybe you'd prefer not to. Those times when you think you're recovering fairly well, and then in the grocery store some music begins to play, or you're at the checkout counter and you see a box of candy, and you just got to leave your groceries there and get out of the store before the tsunami of grief sweeps you away. Most of us have had those experiences. But then, gradually, gradually, almost inevitably, grief is conjoined with gratitude. The grief doesn't go away, but it's conjoined with gratitude. Gratitude for the love that was shared, all the kindnesses shown, all the good that was done together, all the joint joys that were had. The story doesn't stop with bereavement. This congregation has gone through difficult, difficult times of physical damage, destruction, disorientation, bereavement, and then a pandemic. I don't need to tell you about it. You were here for it. But the story hasn't stopped there. My sisters and brothers, I perceive that you are standing together at a new beginning, a new way of being, a new kind of outreach, and a new kind of ministry. Your story hasn't stopped. This is chapter one. There's going to be a whole book, and then there's going to be a sequel. These times of pain are real and have been real. The women, too, had followed. They'd seen the broken, lifeless body of Jesus. They'd seen the wrappings. They'd seen the tomb. They felt the crushing, resonant grief at the torture and death of a beloved one for which they were standing by and witnesses. But, thanks be to God, the story didn't stop there, nor has that story ended yet. The empty tomb redefines everything. In portions of the Easter vigil, the cantor sings, and Ben did such a beautiful job of it last night. The cantor sings, O necessary sin of Adam that is wiped away by the death of Christ. O happy fault that was worthy to have so great a redeemer. O necessary sin. O happy fault. What can this mean? What can this mean? What 
located me. That's because the empty tomb redefines everything. Necessary fault. Happy sin. It's not logical, but it's powerful. That's because the empty tomb redefines everything, and we too go our way amazed at what happened. In your bulletins, the order of services, I hope we have had enough. It's wonderful if we ran out, that's great. There's a picture of some daffodils. Will you look that up in your bulletin? Did Luke say no? <laughs> you see those pictures of the daffodils? That picture was taken three years ago by our then Bishop Mark Holmerud of the Sierra Pacific Synod. You may already guess from the ashes surrounding the daffodils that this picture was taken in what was left of the town of Paradise after the disaster. A town that has a cruelly ironic name, wasn't it? A place where paradise was turned into an inferno that destroyed the homes of more than 26,000 people and took the lives of so many. Yet, yet, in the midst of all this devastation, in the midst of all these deaths, those daffodils sprang up and bloomed, literally out of the ashes. You want a metaphor? You want a metaphor for what this is about? If you want to, take it home and put the picture on your refrigerator, put it by the medicine cabinet, put it on your dresser. Remind yourselves the story doesn't stop there. These blooms that you see remind us, as Luther said, in the midst of death, we are in life. In the midst of grief, there can be a peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of endings, there are new beginnings. The story of the resurrection is still unfolding. What happened in the empty tomb is still being revealed to us. This story is not finished. The final line of this drama has not been spoken. The last note of this symphony has not yet sounded. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Or, as St. John writes to all of us in his letter, Beloved, that's you, beloved. We are God's children now. It does not yet appear, but we shall be. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. And all those who hope thus in God purify themselves as he is pure. It does not yet appear what we shall be. There's a hymn my dad told me congregations used to sing a hundred years ago at gravesides when the church cemetery was only about 40 feet from the front doors of the church. And as the casket was being lowered into the earth, the words would be sung by the congregation. And here are the words, Jesus Christ, my sure defense, and my Savior ever liveth. Knowing this, my confidence rests upon the hope he giveth. Though the night of death be fraught, still with many an anxious thought. Jesus, 
my Redeemer lives. I too, unto life, must waken. He will take me where he is. Shall my courage then be shaken? Shall I fear, or could the head rise and leave its members dead? No, I am too closely bound. I too unto life must awaken. Faith's strong hand, the rock has found, grasped it and will leave it never. Not the ban of death can part from its Lord, the trusting heart. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. May we, along with the women witnesses, go and tell. May we, like Peter, return home amazed.